Let's hear the reading of the Holy Scriptures. Acts of 6, chapter, verse 7, English Standard Version. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As always, it's a delight to see you here this morning and to know that there are others who have joined us online that are worshiping with us as well. This has kind of become the normal uh, to have a, you folks here and, and know that there are so many at home that are, that are worshiping with us. But we're uh, always delighted, and I think the word is thrilled, to know that uh, your presence is indicative of your spiritual interest. And so that makes me especially encouraged to see you here and to know that you're, you're out there watching. Uh, several of you have asked uh, about Mia's absence today. You know where she is. Uh, and in fact, a couple of you, I, I think it was jokingly, said, has Mia finally left you? And I reminded them that I've always told Mia when, if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. So there would be two of us gone if that were the case. It, it thrills my soul. That sounds like a song, doesn't it? To read a passage like Brother Northern has just shared with us, if, if there's any soul-winning fervor in us at all, that ought to get our adrenaline going. To know that the church was growing by leaps and bounds, despite the fact that they were being persecuted on every hand. In fact, the persecution seemed to be more of an incentive than a deterrent to their evangelism. And one of the reasons was because Jesus had become their magnificent obsession. That they knew that without the name of Jesus and without his blood covering their sins, there was no hope for anyone in eternity. And so they were more than willing, even at the cost of their own lives, to share that message with those around them. I know this immutable truth because I've read it over and over in scripture. God wants his church to grow. That's the bottom line. And I realize that there needs to be some proper defining of terms because we can become so concerned about church growth per se that we're only worried about the numbers. But I know God wants his church to grow because he said so in his word from the day of Pentecost forward. And so when we talk about church growth this morning and we talk about how to accomplish that, I, I hope that we all appreciate that we're not just talking about putting another notch in our evangelistic belt. We're not talking about putting gaudy numbers in our, in our church bulletin. Uh, those are things that are inconsequential. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about sharing God's word with those who need it most, to make sure that they understand that only in Christ do we have the hope of living with God in eternity. And if we really believe that, and, and we believe that fervently in our hearts, that is our firm conviction, then we're going to be looking for opportunities to be able to, to, to lead others to the Lord. If you look around at the, uh, the posters on the wall, you'll see a number of passages here and then in other places in the building, all of them having to do with sowing the seed of God's word in the hearts and lives of other people. That's our emphasis for this year, and, and, and to win one in 21 is an ambition that I think is, is a tremendous challenge and a great privilege for every one of us. And I just hope that right now you're already thinking about someone, that special someone, that you can share God's word with 
and lead them to Christ in this calendar year. But again, I go back to our premise. God wants his church to grow. His word says so. And we're going to be looking at some passages this morning that reaffirm that, that reality. So what we need to do is to find a church that will serve as a model for growth without compromise. Notice how important that proviso is. We're not going to compromise truth here at University Church in order to be able to swell our numbers. But we are determined to share that truth, that saving truth, with men and women that we come in contact with, that we build relationships with, in order to be able to see them become a member of the kingdom of Christ as well, and to become heaven-bound. That's, that's our ambition. So when we begin looking for that model church for, for growth, where do we look? Can, can we look in Tennessee? Is it, is it in Mississippi? Is it in Georgia? Is it here in Alabama? Is that, is that where we would find the model church? I, I'm suggesting, and we've talked about this before, so this comes as no surprise, that if you turn to Acts, the second chapter, you find the model church in Jerusalem. I mean, that church knew how to win for the Lord. They knew how to grow. And again, despite the persecution that was about to come upon them, these people knew how to do, get the job done. I suggest that church growth comes only when we study and emulate that church. When we are in that sense willing to go forward back to Jerusalem and to use Jerusalem and the principles and the characteristics of that great church as a model for our growth and our soul winning today. And that's what I want us to do together for the next few minutes. Some Old Testament men empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit looked down the corridor of time, and they prophesied about the coming church, the only hope for a lost and dying world. You can find those prophecies, by the way, in Isaiah chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2. It's only by coincidence or maybe providence that all of those prophecies are found in the second chapter of those respective books. And God's eternal will is that, as the prophet stated it, that that small pebble become a, a great mountain. That that seed become a mighty tree. That that trickle become a mighty river. The prophets not only said the church is coming, the spiritual kingdom of God is going to be established, but they gave particulars. They told us what city it was going to be in, and in during whose reign that that kingdom would be established. And they also talked about the dynamic growth of that church, and that was what the prophet was discussing when he talked about the, 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 uh, the seed becoming a mighty oak. God's will is... That every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At least that's what Paul said in Philippians 2 and verse 10. And, and we know that the fulfillment of all of those prophecies is found in the second chapter of the book of Acts. And in light of those prophetic statements about the dynamic growth of the church, let me ask this question. And it's a question intended to, for the weighing and the sifting of the hearts of us all. Why is it the church in our world... Why is it the modern-day church growing more than it is? If we've got the truth, if we've got the seed that will bring about eternal life in, in the hearts and lives of those who hear it and obey it, then why aren't we more avid and more ardent in our, in our desire to be able to share that message with those around us? I, I know, and I say this lovingly, we've workshopped ourselves to death over, over the matter of how to help the church grow. But still, in some quarters, the growth rate is down to 0%. That's the reality. I read not long ago that all of the congregations on the West Coast are smaller than they were just one decade ago. Now, I'm not sharing that with you in order to depress you. 
But in order for us to be challenged and for us to understand that there is a challenge and a job that needs to be done. Why are these things so? Is it because the gospel has lost its appeal? Is it because people don't, men and women don't need to hear the message of, of Jesus anymore? Obviously, those are not the answers. More to the point, is it something that we as a church are doing? Or maybe more specifically, something that we are not doing? I mean, we've talked the talk. We've, we've planned the work. Our aim is good. But we as a brotherhood just have not pulled the trigger on this thing called the Great Commission. That's reality. And so I want us to understand that so that we will see the need this morning and that we'll also see the challenge. And that that challenge will not depress us again, but that it will incentivize us to want to carry God's word to those around us. I'm afraid part of the problem is, at least as I see it, is that we've substituted our own devisings and our own gimmicks for God's plan. That's why we're not growing any more than we are. After all, the late brother Charles Hodge used to say, what draws them is what keeps them. And so if you have to entertain folks to get them in the doors, guess what? You're going to have to continue to entertain them in order to keep them here. No, we're looking for a biblical model of how to grow the church organically, spiritually and organically, so that it will continue to grow and continue to perpetuate itself. Allow me to submit just a few characteristics of that Jerusalem church that I see in the book of Acts that I think will help us and motivate us in order to be great soul winners for the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the characteristics starts between the ears. The early church, and you'll find this to be true, and I would encourage you and challenge you to read the book of Acts very soon if you haven't read that book lately. One of the things that I see about the Jerusalem church, I mean starting on the day of Pentecost, is that they thought big. I mean that church got out of the wilderness of littleness. And they began to think great thoughts and make great plans for how the church was to grow in the first century world. They learned not to limit the growth of the kingdom by their own impossibility thinking. They were really able to start thinking outside the box and expanding their minds and their thoughts and their ambitions in terms of how can we most effectively share this message even with those who may initially be resistant. We know Jesus was a big thinker. If you don't believe that, just go back and read the Great Commission in Mark 16, 15, 16. Go preach the gospel to the entire world. Preach it to every creature. Man, that is, that's big thinking, isn't it? That's possibility thinking. Jesus said, I want you to expand your minds and think in terms of global evangelism. And that was, of course, the Lord's own mandate. And the early church did just that. They began at Jerusalem. And the Bible says, in light of or as a result of the persecution that came upon those Christians in Jerusalem in Acts 8 verse 4, that they were spread everywhere and they went everywhere preaching the word. So rather than it serving as a deterrent to the growth of the kingdom as the enemies of the cross intended for it to be, the Bible says they just dispersed from Jerusalem and everywhere they went, they continued to share the message of the risen Savior. And that's powerful and that gets me excited. And yet I know that there are those who today who, who don't think big. I, I've talked to people who, who think that, that there's something wrong with, with a, a large congregation. 
In fact, I, I remember a man telling me one time, and I'm quoting as best as memory will allow, he said, we can use any methodology approved of God as long as we keep it small. I do not know where he read that. But it didn't come from this book. God's word says we need to start thinking big. We need to start thinking about evangelizing our community and our state and our nation and then the world. My grandfather, I remember once placed, a, he was a big gardener, and, and he placed a small a gourd in a jug while the, the, the gourd was still small and still attached to the vine. And of course, as you would suspect, that gourd grew to the size of the jug and no bigger. The reality is we grow only to the mental capacity of the people who are desiring to grow and no more. I remember hearing the story about a man who was fishing one day on a lake and he saw another guy about 40 yards away in a boat fishing as well. And began watching the guy because the guy apparently knew how to fish and he was catching fish hand over fist. But, but he also noticed something really strange. That every time the guy would catch a fish more than about eight inches long, he would throw it back. He would keep the small ones and throw the big ones back. And, and, and you don't have to be a fisherman to know that you've got that backwards. So he watched that for about 45 minutes and he just had to row over and ask the man what he was doing. He said, I've noticed you throwing away all the big fish and keeping the small ones. Why is that? And the man said, well, that's easy. I've only got a frying pan at home about that big. And, and, and sometimes we can be that way. How big is your frying pan? How big is the jug that you're putting the gourd in? How, how big is our thinking? And some congregations grow very little because they got their minds in a jug. We need to start thinking big like that first century church that we read off in Acts. In God's business, folks, there is no room for negative thinking. Paul was the one who said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4 and verse 13. And, and it is my firm conviction. I'm, I'm telling you my judgment on this, and I am clearly in identifying it as my judgment only. But it is my firm conviction that the church of our Lord could carry the gospel to the entire world in any five-year period that we determined that that was what we wanted to do. But we've got to get out of the wilderness of littleness. We've got to begin to expand our thinking and realize that with Christ at our side, with his commission in our minds and in our hearts, that we can get the job done. When we really dream in our hearts, only then will we have the fruit in our hands. And that's true about any area of life, and it's certainly true when it comes to soul winning. But we've got to be positive. We've got to be optimistic and enthusiastic about carrying God's message to the world, starting with our own communities. You probably heard the story about the little boy Dad was asking about his upcoming Little League uh, baseball game, and he said, are you going to win? You know, trying to pump his kid up for the baseball game, and the kid emphatically said no. And the dad said, you need to think positive. He said, okay, I'm positive we aren't going to win. I know that guy, and, and you do too. We've got, it starts with, with what's going on between the ears. It starts with realizing that the Lord would not have commissioned us to go to the whole world and preach the message to every creature if we could not have accomplished that thing. So there, it's so important that we understand that, especially when it comes to soul winning, our perspective is critically and vitally important. Here's a second characteristic of that model Jerusalem church that I want to share with you, and that is sound preaching. Acts 2 verse 47, or verse 42 rather, 
Acts 2.42, before we get out of the chapter that chronicles the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, the Bible also says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So as the apostles were disseminating the message of God by oral inspiration, they were listening and applying steadfastly. That means that every day they were doing that on a regular and a consistent basis. Now, I realize that whenever preachers began talking about preaching, it can sound like it's self-serving. That is not my desire, and that is not my ambition. But I also realize that when we talk about it, it began to generate a list of the growing church, Jerusalem church as it was, we cannot leave this off, its li- off the list because that is an element of a dynamic and a growing church. They, they did not grow using Madison Avenue marketing techniques. They weren't looking for men for their pulpits that had a broad base of appeal. No, when you realize that the growth will come only with sound and strong preaching that is done in love, according to Ephesians 4 and verse 15. It needs to be sound. It needs to be affirmative, but it also needs to be generated and motivated by sincere love or else our motivation is all wrong. Sound preaching alone will not create growth. It takes more than that. But also recognize that you can't have consistent growth without it. That is an element that has to be given attention to. Here's the only formula for church growth that works year in and year out. When we have more saints teaching more sinners, we'll have more saved. That's worked for 2,000 years. And it will still work. But some say, the problem I have with strong preaching is that it creates problems. I mean, it stirs things up. No, it never has. But it does help us to identify where the problem areas are so that they can be addressed and resolved. So we perhaps have, as my brother Harold Taylor used to say, we've just got too much uh, mild-mannered preaching today. Maybe we've got too many Clark Kent preachers and not enough Superman preachers. Let me give an example of that in the Bible. Just two chapters over in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. The Bible tells us about two men in particular who got in trouble for preaching, for sharing the message of Christ with the people in that city. And they were were pulled on the carpet and, and given this mandate, this order, you don't preach in his name anymore. But look at verse 13. Now when they saw, and by they, we're talking about the officials of the city that, that uh, were bringing the heat on these two men, when they saw the boldness, if you've got your own Bible and can underline, highlight that word, the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Notice the outstanding characteristic of their presentation of the message of Christ that was appreciated or at least recognized by those city officials was their boldness. So bold that they marveled that they would preach that message with that degree of boldness. But then verse, verse 11 of the same chapter, the Bible says, Peter then says to the Sanhedrin, that's the supreme court of their day, the stone you rejected became the chief cornerstone. You don't have to evaluate that very long or very deeply to appreciate that Peter was telling those men, hey, you're the ones responsible for killing the Son of God. You have rejected the chief cornerstone. You're responsible for nailing him to the cross. Doesn't sound like he's backing off much, does it? And then down in verse 29, same chapter, 
when they had been turned loose and ordered not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, see what they prayed. And folks, this just absolutely destroys me. I mean, it blows me away. Here's what they prayed when they were told, don't preach anymore in the name of this Jesus. They prayed, grant unto us, your servants, that with all boldness, we may speak your word. Boldness is what got you in trouble in the first place. Don't you understand that? Well, yes, we understand it. And that's why we're praying for more. God's word needs to be preached with boldness. It needs to be preached courageously. It needs to be preached no matter who's in the White House. It needs to be preached no matter what the laws may say on the books in regards to abortion or euthanasia or a number of other political issues that have especially a moral dimension about them. That's the kind of preaching that we need today. More, as one brother said, more candid preaching and less candied preaching. We have too much preaching that, that's perfumed and doesn't make sin stink. And I, I, I lie awake sometimes at night thinking about that. So if the church is to grow, we've got to have voices in our pulpits and, and not merely echoes. Folks, I'm persuaded that truth will appeal to people. But I'm also aware of the fact that back in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was concerned as he was commissioned to go with a message from God to the people. Ezekiel said, but they won't listen. And God's response to Ezekiel was, you need to go and preach that message anyway, whether people will respond to it or even listen to it or not, so that people will know that there's a prophet in the land. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 3 and following. I remember that sometimes when I'm tempted to compromise the message in order to be able to placate people. So we need to make absolutely certain that we're standing. And, and please do not overlook this vital element. We need to make certain that, that we're standing with Jesus in our preaching. And, and here's what I mean by that. We, we need to make sure that we are correct biblically, and then we need to preach it without apology. I, I, we're living in a culture that demands an apology for just about everything nowadays. But that's one thing, folks, we need to never apologize for. If we preached God's message in love, we don't need to ever apologize for that. Even in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, God's word says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. If you can just show me one man who's willing to go out throughout the streets of Jerusalem and preach God's word courageously, I will spare the entire city. And although we understand that a preacher is no better and no closer to God than any other believer, still we need in our day some good men who will occupy some empty places in the pulpits of our land and of our world. Somebody said one time the trouble with being a leader is that you've got to stick your neck out. And boy, that is absolutely right. But that's all the more reason for, for needing good men who are willing to lead and take the heat when necessary. Maybe, maybe good leaders need hazard pay, I don't know. But I do know that we need to occupy the pulpits and good elders need to be occupying their place in our local congregations and leading the church affirmatively and positively so that we will become great soul winners for Christ. We just need great leaders we need great elders like never before. I am so grateful for the 12 men who, 
who have taken on that oversight of this congregation. We need great elders like we have never needed them before. And I've often said when people ask me about the preacher shortage, I I believe if we had more great elders across our congregations, across the land and around the world, the preacher problem would take a shortage, would, would take care of itself. We need dynamic deacons like never before. We need powerful preachers who will give themselves to the ministry of to the word and to prayer as they did in Acts 6 like never before. And why is that so important? Because any church is but the length and the shadow of its leadership. You mark that down. A, a, a membership will never rise above the level of its leadership. We don't need more brakemen in the church, folks. We need more engineers who will get the church going and moving forward. You heard the story about the man who was in the Walmart parking lot one time, and he saw a car, apparently without a driver, moving, rolling slowly in his direction. And so he dropped his bags, ran to the car, took a great deal of speed and coordination, but he managed to get the driver's door open, pulled it open, jumped in, slammed on the brakes. He was pretty proud of himself. And he got out and he cried, I stopped it, I stopped it. And he saw a red-faced fellow coming in this direction who said, yeah, I was pushing it. Well, we don't need both of those things. We don't need stoppers, we need pushers. And, and that's what God has called us to do in the leadership of the local congregations. Quickly, here's a third characteristic of that to model Jerusalem church, and that was benevolence. Please notice that as of Acts 2 and verse 47... The Bible says in the same verse where it, it talks about the Lord adding to the church daily those that were being saved. That's from Pentecost forward. It also says, and, and they had the favor of all the people. Wow. Not only was the church born, born on the day of Pentecost, not only was 3,000 or so people added to the church just in that one day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in an assembly where 3,000 plus people said, I want, I want to follow Jesus, and they were baptized into Christ. I, I can only imagine that in my mind and in my heart. But, but, but why was it that, that it then says, and, and then having favor with all the people? Back up a few verses in Acts chapter 2, just before you get to verse 47, and you'll see why. Because they were willing to, to share unselfishly of their material assets with those who were truly needy. That's what the paragraph before verse 47 talks about. Look at verse 32, for example. Now, the multitude of those, this is Acts 4, by the way. I jumped two chapters on you. Chapter 4 of Acts, verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who who believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So the reason that they were willing to do that is because they had a common bond. Jesus Christ had become their mutual, magnificent obsession. And and so they had separated themselves from the material things of this world. They truly had set their affections, their minds on things above and not on things of the earth. So that material things did not come to mean a great deal to them. If you have a need, then I'm more than happy. I have an abundance. I'll be happy to share what I have with you if it will help you out. And that's, that was their mentality in the early church. And that's one of the reasons, folks, I believe that they grew hand over fist like they did. And for good reason. That captured the attention of the, of the, of the first century world. That, that common love and common concern that they had for one another. And folks, I I tell you, we'll capture the attention of the community in which we exist if we demonstrate that exact same kind of concern and compassion for one another and for our community. 
After all, it was our Lord who said, and by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. John 13, 34, 35. Brethren, if all else fails, let's read the directions. And the directions start in Acts chapter 2. I've heard that the three most hated words during the Christmas season, especially to dads, are some assembly required. And I will guarantee you from my own experience that uh, that process goes a lot easier if you'll just take some time to read the directions. Find it in your own language first. (laughs) And then read and follow the directions. Number four, fellowship. Wow. That church demonstrated how devoted and how loving they were by taking every opportunity to fellowship. And the problem is, I think, that while they were sharing virtually everything, as we just saw, even what was in their pocketbooks, they, they, they shared their sweet fellowship with one another. And we've so narrowly defined the word fellowship in the modern-day church that we've come to think of fellowship almost exclusively as what? Social interaction. Brother Tom Holland used to say, when I hear the word fellowship anymore, I smell coffee. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. But there's so much more to it than just social interaction. Fellowship literally means the the sharing of anything. Anything that we might do together is fellowship. But how many congregations do we know of in our modern world who worship under the same roof, but they're separated and divided by attitude and ideology? But contrast Psalm 133 verse 1 with that kind of mindset. David said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And all I can say is amen to that. Over on the New Testament side of things, Paul wrote Philippians 1.27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, here it is, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul said, That's the only hope I have. That's the only thing I'm really major thing that I'm praying for, and that is that you continue to work together with the spirit of unity and, and that fellowship and that sweet harmony that the Lord's church ought to be characterized by, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century. And, and yet, folks, there are some churches that are so cold that you can scrape the icicles off the walls and ice skate down the aisles. But you're not going to grow a church in an environment like that. You've got God's assurance that that is the case. We're so concerned about ecology today, and we ought to be. We ought to take care of this planet that God has entrusted to our care and be good stewards of it. But let me tell you something that's of even greater importance. We need to be more concerned about creating a sweet atmosphere of peace and harmony in the church of our Lord. You can't grow flowers in the Klondike It's very difficult to bring people into a fellowship that's cold and distant. So while we're making this list, we have to add to it the sweet fellowship of God's people. We've got to love one another, and we demonstrate that by our desire to be with one another. And here's the last thing that we're going to talk about this morning. And I just as soon have left this off the list, but I can't and still be biblical in my approach. And that is that first church purified the church. Turn to Acts 5 very quickly. We're almost through. The Bible tells us that when sin entered the camp, it was immediately purged. It was dealt with. 
That is, if a brother or sister was overtaken in some sin, they did not just ignore it. Or as the Corinthian church did in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they did not boast in their tolerance of it. You see, they were like like a lot of people in our world. They they took a great deal of pride in the fact that I can tolerate and, and pat you on the back for just about any atrocious activity that you choose to involve yourself in. And, and the Lord said, that's never been my plan for the church. The plan for the church is that it ought to be different. It's the, the ecclesia. You are the called out ones. And that means that you have been sanctified and set apart from the world for a special and a unique purpose. And, and we need to recognize that every day of our lives. We say we don't tolerate and we don't celebrate sin either in our own lives or in the lives of others. God's word calls upon us to deal with it. And we don't like to talk much about church discipline today. But did you know that there's more said in the New Testament about church discipline than there is about the Lord's Supper? And that's true. Look at Acts 5 very quickly. And then we'll wind this up. Verse 1 beginning. you, You know the account. But, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold possessions. And, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. That's critical that you know that. She was aware of what he had done. Maybe they had a, a, an agreement sitting at the kitchen table that here's what we're going to do. And they brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your, uh, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. That's, it's a serious matter. And then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Well, I can imagine how that would happen. And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Had two funerals that day within three hours of each other. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Now, let me just summarize all of that by saying this. What shocks me here is not so much the fact that Ananias and Sapphira had to die for their sin, but that they had to die in order to keep the church pure. That's how serious God is about that matter. They were like, the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, as I see it, is that they were like a lot of Christians. If we're not careful, they, they needed to bring the practice up with their profession. They said, here's how much we've, we've given to the work of the, of the kingdom, and, and that wasn't the case at all. Look at what happened as a result of those two deaths. Look again at verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and all who heard these things. I could imagine that would be the case. When word began to get around, did you know if you lie to the apostles that the punishment is, is capital? You'll die? That'd cut down on lying, wouldn't it? And then later, Dr. Luke would record something very similar in Acts 9.31. Then the church together throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace... And we're edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit 
Watch this carefully. They were multiplied. How can you grow while purging the church of sin in its midst at the same time? One actually makes for the other. You see, we will not grow in spite of it, but because of it, because our determination to keep God's people pure. Many congregations, I'm afraid, have failed to grow in our day because we have not preached and practiced church discipline as we should. We've not purged the church of the leavening influence of sin as God has directed. You see, biblically practiced church discipline never fails. Either the person repents, and that's the ultimate objective, that's what God wants, that's what we want, or the church is purged of their damaging influence. But either way, God's plan will work. And in that environment, as as Dr. Luke told us, outreach will occur, and, and everybody will be teaching everyone everywhere. That's God's plan. And when we do those things, the church will grow. In fact, one of the reasons in the outset of this lesson, I said, I hope you're already thinking about that special person that you want to lead to the Lord this year. Do you realize it's just a matter of simple mathematics that if everyone leads someone to Christ in a calendar year, the church will double in its size in one year. The next year, exponentially, we'll do the same thing. And if we were to do that for the next 10 to 12 years, the whole world, if possible, would have been evangelized. It's a matter of math. But it's also a matter of understanding what God has called his church to do. And there are a lot of things that the church needs to be involved in. But our primary concern and our primary mission is to share the message of Christ with those who need to hear it. So soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. But let's not put our armor on if we don't ever intend to go to the field of battle and do what God has called us to do. Maybe this morning you need to sign on to the Lord's army, and we're here to encourage you and to expedite that in whatever way we can. If you need to turn your back on sin and repentance and confess Jesus as God's son, we would be delighted to hear that good confession. And we'll help you be baptized into Christ so that you can be heaven bound as you leave this building this morning. If you need to come, we invite you to do so while we stand and while we sing.